As we wrap this season of Blamo, I'm pleased to bring you a chat with a designer who's meant a lot to me, a world builder, Scott Sternberg. Many people have a brand that changed their life, a brand they associated wearing as making it, a brand that helped them understand not only fashion, but who they are too. For me, that brand was Band of Outsiders, and the designer was Scott Sternberg. It's funny because I always record these intros way after the episode, and I re-listen to the episode a couple times first. You know, I'm like, I gotta let these things marinate in my brain. I had forgotten how ahead of the game he was, and how early Scott was before everyone else when Band of Outsiders came out. Many brands focus on a single product to define them, but I'm not sure if Scott knew how, and that's a good thing. You look back at everything Band of Outsiders was on before others, like the cool Polaroid campaigns, hanging out with Frank Ocean, Jason Schwartzman, even live-streamed fashion shows. It makes me think, oh man, what is about to happen with his latest brand, Entire World? We have a lot of catching up to do. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is designer Scott Sternberg. Scott and I discuss growing up in the Midwest, why he was reluctant to consider himself a fashion designer, how films influence his work, and what it takes for a fashion brand to be a platform for an experience that goes beyond clothes. It's our last episode of the season, and we're going big. Thanks again for making the time. This was really good to chat. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I think for for a lot of people, you are someone who kind of walked multiple paths at the same time in the sense, like very early in the game, but like you were a designer, yes, still are, but you were also like a brand marketer concept, you know, carrying every single role into fruition and wearing a lot of hats uh, and also like a really good representative of what it meant to be uh, a business owner in in like a new age. And I think that's, that's something that I particularly think you don't get very, you know, you don't get enough credit for in that because band at a long time was how many people were working there? I mean, at the most 25, 26. Yeah. But yeah. when it started, what was it? Two, one? Me. It was me. It was me for three years. And then it was me and, and Nicole for, you know, a couple more. It was right. really, I mean, it was a labor of love and it was a, you know, it started with me wanting to start a company. It started with me wanting to be an entrepreneur. And I had to work my way into, what are you going to do? What are you going to sell? You know, I knew it, I didn't want to provide a service. I had been an agent at CAA and we were servicing our clients. And I could think of nothing more, more right. boring. Um, so it's like, oh, I'm going to make things. And when I, it's going to be a product. And I just sort of logically worked my way into clothing. But yeah, I mean, I think all these things, I never, I can't separate them. Like, you know, like I, I consult for people sometimes and I do design work, but that's always uh, contextualized by, uh, I guess, brand work, for lack of a better term, because I think with clothing, like they're inextricably tied together. You, you, you feel a certain way in a garment, not only because of the fabric and the cut and all of that stuff, but because of the, all these things that have been put on it, right? Um, like, for, what that, do you mean, for example? Like the brand. So like a white shirt, if you walk out of your house and a white shirt that you got from Uniqlo 
mm-hmm. and you walk and it's a button up shirt and you walk out of your house in a white button up band shirt or white button up Prada shirt, they're all essentially the same commodity. They're all a white shirt. And sure, you know, like the fabric will be a little bit different, a little bit nicer. Maybe Uniqlo has some amazing fabrics. Um, but in your mind, you're, you're feeling differently about that shirt. You know, if you're in that Prada shirt, you're probably feeling kind of slick and, and rich and, um, you know, uh, everything they put on that brand, a little hyper intellectualized or whatever. If you're in a band shirt, you're thinking maybe of Redford and three days at the Condor and you're, 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 you've got a prep school mindset. Like these are subtle things. I, I don't think they're conscious things, but they're, it, it's all part of the, the, the experience of clothing, fashion, uh, servicing identity and uh, mood and uh, the sort of the emotional side of all that stuff. Um, Which you really tapped into. I mean, the stars, and I think with entire world too, like the stars have very much aligned in your favor uh, across both with band when, you know, when band started and also with entire world in the sense that, um, yeah, like the nail on the head there is like the storytelling and the identity association, because I remember there was a company that would make very, very slim um, Oxford shirts, Oxford mm. buttons, very slim. And I say that because I, I think I had a band shirt and I, I don't know, I was like a size like quad XL or something. I know, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> no, it's fine. But it's, but this company basically made exactly what you were making. But for me, like I couldn't, I couldn't wear that because it didn't say band of outsiders. It didn't have the kind of faded logo. It didn't, it, none of that stuff, but essentially it was probably even like an Albini Oxford, right? It was, it felt like it could have been identical, but I wanted to be associated with band of outsiders and then all of that cool stuff that it represented. Totally. And then the tribal, the tribalistic aspect of a brand too, right? Part of the community that it represents. And, uh, and with band and, and the entire world, you know, the branding is really subtle. So it's one of these winky things when you're in the know, uh, mm. like a like a cult or a secret society or something right. like that. Uh, so band had a placket down the back that yep. would identify that as a band of outsiders shirt. And by the way, plenty of people knocked that off too. It was always a challenge to explain to more business types or investor types, and it still is. Um, you know, what makes what you're doing, because what I do is quite classic and, and mm-hmm. at its core in design, that's what I like and what I believe in and where I think I can, you know, contribute the most. Like, what makes it different? Why is somebody just not going to go buy Uniqlo? Um, it's, a really, it's a really hard thing to explain that, you know, that clothing is an emotional experience. It is a, um, it's tied to memory and feeling and all these things. Um, it's not just pragmatic. It's not just, um, I mean, for some people it is, but I, I don't even, I don't even know for those people because they're, if it is pragmatic, then that's tied to, that's tied to a memory. That's tied to an idea about, uh, what uniforms are, what clothing is as well. Um, and they're feeling really smart and crafty for, you know, putting that outfit together for $20 or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, it's also clear to me. It's <laughs> it, and it's also it's all has complete integrity to me, and the business plays right into that. Yeah. Um, 
and I think some of this is, you know, my own issues around um, or being able to just trust people to sort of share the vision and build the vision and all that, uh, which is just typical founder syndrome. Yeah. But, you know, it's um, how things are priced plays into how you feel about the clothes and, and the accessibility and the brand and, um, you know, how you, how the distribution channels where you sell that stuff, how you, how you roll that out. Um, it's all so integral. So, and that's what, you know, ultimately as somebody who didn't want to be a fashion designer until I was 28 years old and didn't even call myself one. 28? Like three, yeah. Oh, okay. That's when I started band. Wow. Um, I like, I didn't even consider myself a fashion designer until I started making women's wear and like a couple years into that. I used to say, I just make clothes uh, and I wasn't being cute. I really felt that way. I felt like I was just learning and making clothes and, and putting things together and uh, honing a vision. And then once that foundation was set, I really did feel feel like I was sort of a forward-facing designer and really thinking about product design and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't remember my point, 28 fashion designer. No, well, I mean, I think it's interesting because you your background and perspective on all this really makes more sense when you see how these brands attracted people and that they are a place to belong. It is a lifestyle. I mean, this sounds obnoxious to say, but like you were selling cool, you know what I mean? Like you were selling acceptance and a part of a, yeah, like you were saying like a tribe and something like that. But I mean, cause you, the, the, the training, whatever you had, I mean, you, you went to like wash you, right? I mean, you're a Midwest dude. I'm a, I'm grew up in Dayton, Ohio. I went to WashU. I stayed in the Midwest. I because I'm from St. Louis as well. Just so oh here. nice yeah, yeah. my oh, my nice. Ted Drews fam for life. So oh my god, it's a <laughs> stomach stomach bomb. Everything there's a stomach bomb. Fried ravioli. I mean yep. Jesus. <laughs> um, yeah, I love no. I loved St. Louis. I loved going to school there. Um, that yeah, I'm a Midwest guy. And I studied economics. I studied photography too. Yeah. Um, but I, I certainly, you know, my style reference growing up, style references growing up were great. So my parents have terrific taste. And it was always informed by an idea of uh, being somewhat like aesthetic outsiders within this community, right? Mm -hmm. Like the stuff that we liked, um, other than Ralph Lauren, which everybody kind of liked. Yeah. Um, but that was, you know, and that, that's its own sort of transportive kind of idea of a brand, you know, uh, or of a product. It wasn't about, it, it wasn't about this real life that you're living. It's about this, you know, this sort of fantasy of a life, this sort of cinematic idea of a life, um, which is different from Band of Outsiders and different from the entire world. Um, but even if some of the clothes look similar, but, um, I, it really helped. Being in that sort of, I'm called bland because plenty of people have taste in their own vision, but kind of growing up in that environment forced me to research and explore and, you know, sort of figure out like what I liked, you know, because I knew aesthetically what was surrounding me other than in my house, I didn't like. Right. Um, and it, this idea of taste uh, and identity through the choices of what you, the furniture you put in your home or the clothes you wear. Um, it was so clear to me 
from childhood, both because my parents look so great all the time compared to a lot of people in the community. And what, just, what did your parents do? My dad's a dentist. He still practices, although that's a little uh, fraught during COVID being 72 years old. Oh, um, at, <laughs> my mom has done a bunch of stuff. She's, you know, she was a teacher. She's worked retail. She now is an associate of Williams Sonoma. She calls it cathartic, the best job she's ever have had. Um, she's a piece of work. Um, they they are fully clad every day in the entire world. And when I do band, <laughs> fully clad at Band of Outsiders, it is really really cute. Yeah, where where do you think they got their taste? Because it sounds like your perspective on a lot of this really came from your life at home. Yeah, I think so. And 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 you know the the search, the the research story growing up, which was a very different time when you couldn't just get on your phone and go into a YouTube hole or an Instagram hole and just find every possible thing. Yeah, you waited for magazines to come. You had to work for it. You worked for it. Yeah, Um, total complete. I mean, I I don't know if 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 what when exactly that break was i do remember going to the library during college freshman year to check my email and i okay. think my sophomore year we could get it like on our own computers with a dial up yeah but like i i wonder if this at that inflection point the the, the younger generation really understands how different it was how inaccessible information was um you know when a magazine came when gq came when vanity fair came especially it's like so exciting. But um, so my mom, I think, had the taste level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she got it from her mom, who was chic as shit, um, just looking at pictures and stuff. And I think that, that it was clear, because I even have some of uh, my grandmother's furniture oh my um, in, in my house, these two chairs in particular. And I'm, I'm looking at an old uh, silver cigarette holder over there that I just snagged from my mom on the last visit. Um, it was clear that there was, you know, a set of values like around design and great design and beautiful things, beautiful objects, um, and around looking good and, um, you know, looking a certain way. Um, so that's always been, you know, whether it's, you know, watching my, my parents put together a dinner party, that would be the most, a, a big memory of just how important it was for all to, it all to look great. And did they have place really, cards? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> depending on, depending on, depending on who was coming over. Okay. But certainly. I mean like the flowers and which flatware and which, which plates and not in sort of a, not in sort of a precious way, but just the pleasure that they took and putting together something beautiful, making a beautiful table, um, not to put up any sort of, front but just because that was that was fulfilling you know that there was something cathartic about um beauty Mm -hmm. and beauty and object beauty and design um so that's always just been a part of my life interesting so you're at washu you're studying economics and where do you start to like kind of refine more of your interests because i know that like godard was like a big deal for band and also i would argue and people may admit this or not but i will definitely admit it you band of outsiders as a brand introduced me to the film and godard as a director like cool. i might pretend that i really <laughs> knew about these things ahead of time but i knew nothing i was 
goofing around in an apartment in the Lower East Side. Like I, you know, so seeing that, like, where did, where did that stuff come in, in in terms of like the admiration of film? Sure. Um, I started studying photography my freshman year of college okay, and did, you know, just did a deep dive into the history of, into art history and history of photography. And um, I think that, you know, that the sort of uh, adjacency to cinematography and, and film, like I always love movies, like I always was a big movie fan. Um, and I, I'm a huge cinephile. But at the time, I just loved movies, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Goonies, like any movie that was at a theater I wanted to see. Because um, at the time, that was also a special thing, right? Yeah. There, wasn't so many, there weren't so many options and things to watch all the time. Um, and I think getting really into photography and, his, and art history, um, the adjacency of film history was just like right there. And mm. by sophomore year of college, I just started diving deep into uh into film so i got into probably first like the sort of gritty american cinema of the 70s so like sydney lamette mm-hmm. um you know movies like the french connection um you know coppola the conversation and just like really starting to connect to these 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 films just feeling like oh what did i find here the the scores the the cinematography, certainly the stories, the characters, like I just like went deep. And then the next step after that was all those 60s French New Wave films and getting really into Godard and Truffaut and uh, Romare and um, Melville. I mean, you name it. And then, you know, you just start and you, you can't stop. So, they, you know, that that's where it started in college when you have just an infinite amount of time I was like a nerd. So I, I'm like the guy who like studied three weeks before an exam. So I would like get a guaranteed A on the exam. And also, so I wouldn't have any anxiety leading up to the exam. So I would have all this time on my hands because I was so organized. I'm still very much that way. Um, and, you know, enough time, enough weed, a lot of movies. <laughs> Where were you watching movies? Were you at like, you going to like High Point and stuff around, around there and like Clayton? all uh all rented vhs really really you know um and buying vhs's like that i remember a lot of like seeking out the i forget where we where i got them from there were a couple uh fraternity brothers of mine believe it or not oh wait you were in a uh, frat oh yeah I was oh hold on really? yeah okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was like what you know was wash you sure which I, is not I, a very like greek heavy school no it's not greek heavy but it that world for whatever reason just became my social life and i wasn't uh, you know i was very much myself it wasn't like i was like leading like some double life or something and like right i was still in the closet i was still you know it was mm. still sort of a weird time to be gay at, at that age um or a difficult time i should say um but other than that it was just me and uh you know made great friends uh they they're all on these zoom poker games actually on saturday nights during the quarantine wait and i haven't been on all are you playing zoom brothers. poker i'm not because i can't play poker and i hate games but i have missed every single zoom poker game until tomorrow i'm gonna crash um they don't know it yet 
<laughs> one of them knows it is giving me the information. And it's literally, it's like 12 of them. Um, uh, they're all sort of still super close. They all live in New York or on the East Coast. So, so you make kind of, you kind of figure out and refine more of your interests and stuff in college, as many do, but you eventually get to LA and you're at CAA. Like, mm-hmm. that's a big difference from St. Louis, especially with the guy, you know, I mean, cause I'm, I only say that as I'm someone whom I loved St. Louis, it was very special for me, but uh, it was also, I don't know if that city at the time provided a place to uh, enhance the life that I was seeking out. I'm trying to be very diplomatic in how I say these. Yeah. It's a blank slate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's truly a gateway somewhere, but it is not anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So you, so you make your way to LA yeah, and you're, this is still there's no fashion design. You're just becoming someone who has a little bit more taste. Yeah, the taste was always there. I mean, yeah. honestly, and and the desire to. I, I mean, my J my mailbox's relationship with J Crew uh, mm. during college was they were very close. Like I, that catalog was everything, and that's when it looked so good. That's when Emily Woods was still at the helm creatively and business wise. She's somebody who. I worked with later on, um, who really got me into all this. And uh, no, I, I very much care about what I look like. And I think people rem- remember me as such, not like a fashion guy or anything like that. I just have my things that I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, but I moved to LA to make movies and ended up, yeah, being an, an assistant at CAA, the talent agency, which is not making movies. Um, <laughs> at all and not in- exceptionally creative, but a really fun place to work and sort of like a boot camp for Hollywood. Um, yeah. yeah. Did you have the idea that like, this is going to get me in? I say that in the sense that when I worked in the music industry, you know, I moved to New York to play music, but then mm. I get a job at a label as a friend of mine was in this band and he's like, yeah, come, you know, come work at the label. And in my mind, I was like, I'm going to slip in my demo while I'm working and I'm in. Were you like, I got, I got a first look deal with my agency. No, I mean, I truly, uh, I, I had written, listen, I had written my senior thesis, uh, for economics, um, on the film industry and, um, had, you know, spent time out here and like spent a lot of time just thinking about like, what, what can I do within film watching films? And I, my writer and my director, um, you know, taking lots of photographs. Um, like what, what do I do? But I really truly didn't know. I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to be creative. Like we all think we do coming out of school and, you know, not understanding that that's not always about output and content or creation of art or whatever it is. Creativity finds its way across every job or medium. If you're, if you're that sort of person, um, but I really didn't know. And I, I just I knew enough people, you know, uh, had taken enough general meetings as one should uh, to know that if, if you don't totally know what you want to do, but you want to dial into the city. And I didn't know anybody here. I really, I moved here cold. Everybody from school went, went, went back east. Um, that this was just sort of the best vantage point um, through which to see the industry because the agencies however sort of vapid and uh, sort of, you know, all, all the things you hear about a talent agency, everything has to go through an agency. 
uh, from the creative side to the business side. So you're 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 at the like train station. You're in the middle of all of it. So you can really see a lot. And as an assistant, you're it sounds like a horrible job. It's tons of fun. You're on the phone listening in on calls all day long, and you really just get and you're reading scripts. Um, so it's, it was a wonderful education. And 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 what I learned with that job and the next one, which was working for a writer, a big screenwriter, has his writer's assistant and a development exec which was basically just bringing projects to his production company to see if he wanted to make them. I learned that I didn't want to be in the movie business. It was really clear within like two years because uh, it didn't feel creative. It felt like it was a relationship game. And I uh, like people a lot, <laughs> but didn't want to make a living, uh, you know, going out to lunch and breakfast and dinner, uh, just wheeling and dealing and, you know, trying to get scripts in and stuff like that. Yeah. So where does band come from? Because mm. it's, yeah. Yeah. So I, so what happened was I'll try to make it quick. Yeah. Not boring. So I, after working for this writer, this was 1999 and it was when there was an internet boom, a content boom and everybody in Hollywood was starting a dot com. Like Spielberg had this thing called pop.com and there was this, VC called Idea Lab that was an incubator in Pasadena and all these cool companies and cool ideas were going through there and uh, Disney and Imagineering like they were doing stuff outside of the parks there was all this cool stuff going on and CAA uh, started a new media group um, and I felt like I want to I'm going to see what this is all about not just CAA I wanted I wanted a job at Idea Lab I just like the name and I met with the guy who was came back to CAA who had been Ovitz's right hand and had went to R&D at Disney, his name was Dan Adler, and took a general meeting with him and said, this is who I am, this is the way I think about the world. And he said, well, this is new, new media, which is digital media. They called it new media at the time, which is cute. Um, you know, he's like, this is what we're doing here. It's the wild, wild west. Why don't you gain a perspective on it, come back in a few weeks and give me your thoughts. And, you know, cut to, I was an agent for him for about three and a half years at CAA. And again, I went back to this place where I had this vantage point to see this kind of roller coaster of a digital content business um, being built in Hollywood. And so that was everything from video games to looking at intellectual property and how that would change contractually for people like Redford and Spielberg who owned all their IP um, mm. and what that meant for what was TiVo at the time and would become things like Netflix. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was everything. It was licensing video games for movies or thinking about, uh, what new interactive storytelling might be. And it was incredibly stimulating intellectually. And it was actually really creative. I became, this is so weird, but I became like the, the de facto PowerPoint guy at CAA <laughs> to pitch uh, new corporate business and new business nice. in general. Okay. And I, well, I'm a closet graphic designer. I love graphic design. And that's really the first sort of like, um, and I've been doing it since I got a Mac Classic when I was 16 years old uh, uh, instead of a car for my 16th birthday. Wow. I, yeah, I'm like, it, there's nothing else to do on a computer before there was the internet. So I yeah, you had like design. Claris Works or something? Was that what you were Yeah, doing? exactly. <laughs> um, making newsletters for nobody to read. And so in that PowerPoint, honestly, that knowledge, it 
got me into the best rooms and, and the best meetings. And it was, it was rad at CAA, but it also, it's something I've taken with me to this day. I uh, use that, that uh, tool as a medium for my so many presentations. Like I'm working on some footwear stuff right now. And I just did the whole thing on PowerPoint, uh, just like collages of shoes and stuff like that. Um, I do everything on PowerPoint, but anyway, so I, I, uh, the reason I liked that job so much is because I knew that it wasn't my life. And I knew that I was just going to do it for a few years and then figure something else out. So I was able to approach it with a lot of levity um, and just sort of going every day, really just excited about learning and, and all that. And I ended up <clears throat> finding my way out, which was through Carrie Woods, who was a film producer uh, in the nineties, a big film producer with Miramax. He made like kids gummo and scream and, mm. uh, worked with Quentin, uh, you know, reservoir dogs. And his ex-wife is this woman, Emily Woods, who started J crew with her dad and her new husband. And they were trying to start a new company and it was going to be very entrepreneurial, might be media based, might be consulting. And, you know, I was really into clothes. I was always really into clothes and I was buying much nicer clothes at this point because i was making money what were you wearing um, at the time what suit did you have on uh we didn't have to wear suits the new media oh, guys that's we right the cowboys okay. okay i was wearing my favorite thing was mew mew men's mm. at the time mew mew made men's yeah and there was this amazing store on melrose uh that's since been five other stores and is totally closed now um and that was just my jam I just loved it. I loved the fit. I loved the attitude. It, it felt like me, you know, like, mm -hmm. just, like they just got me. Um, little nylon knit sweaters, like kind of very classic, but like just a little bit, mm -hmm. a little bit off, a little bit weird. And uh, so they hired me, these three entrepreneurs to come help them figure out what they were going to do. She had just sold J crew and, you know, the, the, the world was, was ahead, was her yeah. oyster. And we, you know, I secretly was thinking, okay, this might be my way into a starting my own business, but B something to do with clothing. Right. Um, because I, I was thinking so much about entrepreneurial ideas while at CAA, because most of the inc incoming meetings were entrepreneurs, people starting internet businesses that wanted our representation or access to our talent. So I was learning, I was seeing very clearly like, okay, I'm not this guy who services clients. I'm the client who has his own business that comes in and leverages all these resources. That right. was really clear to me. That was my biggest takeaway from, from CAA and PowerPoint. So, <laughs> so uh, I worked with them for no more than eight months and I pitched them as we were pitching a bunch of ideas uh, we were going to pitch a bunch of ideas to like Sears uh, with Emily was on the board, Target, JC Penney for mass merchandised, uh, match, mass merch clothing lines um, mm -hmm. that we would either consult on or we would hook them up with talent, whatever it was. I came up with my own idea and I pitched it to Emily and it was a good idea. Um, and it was for Target and she loved it. And she said, but we're not going to do this. We're starting a media company and we want you to run the media company. But I actually think she said to me, you should do this. You're a clothing designer. I know you don't realize that or fashion designer. I know you don't think about yourself that way, but every way that you just communicated this idea and contextualized this idea and the boards and everything you just did, like this is 
anybody who ever worked for me at J Crew, this is the best of that. Like you're good at this. You should mm. you should explore this. And she introduced me to about three or four former former employees of hers that were at places like Coach. One was still at J Crew um, to just again take general meetings, just sort of talk, meet, and sort of get a perspective on where I could maybe start. Whether it was with this specific idea for for Target or Walmart or whatever it was going to be, <clears throat> or what eventually became Band of Outsiders. My takeaway from those meetings from everybody was you can't just go into Target and like start a clothing line. That's not how it works. If you want to have some leverage, you need to do something kind of fancy and expensive, um, esoteric, and you know something that gets press and sort of builds your profile. Want even more blammo? Hey, the season's over after this, but it's not ending on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com forward slash blammo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. You can hear what's happening with Sid Mashburn and Michael Hill and the return of some of your favorite past guests. Visit patreon.com forward slash blammo and we'll see you there. Um, so wait, so let, let me just yeah. uh, politely interrupt here. So the yeah. original idea, though, it was more clothing for the mass, more, more yes. along the lines of entire world, like very it's affordable, it's so full accessible. Cir- yes, very okay. full circle. It was called Workshop, and it was menswear. It kind of had, uh, it, it was like a modernist bent, a uh, little bit of Mad Men, a little bit of Prada. Um, yeah. It was early, you know, this was early 2000s. So it was before um, Mad obviously, but like that, that vibe, right? Yes. Okay. Totally. And they, and they say, go Lux, you need to be pricey. Yeah, you need to establish credibility. And the, the reality at the time, the construct at the time, which is all changing now, um, was, you know, there were no barriers to entry, truly. It seems like there were, but there really weren't. Um, if you had a few relationships to getting a really fancy store to pick up your stuff, and to even getting a magazine to write about your stuff. Um, the landscape was in American design and menswear particularly was pretty quiet at the time. Yeah. You know, we're, we were coming off an era of Perry Ellis and Ralph Lauren and Donna Karen, all these big names, Tommy Hilfiger, you know, in American design. And then the nineties were very much about Europe. Um, Armani and all that. Yeah. And helmet, you know, Oh shit. Yeah. You, you know, like that, that whole, that whole world, those were the stars. And, you know, so at Tom Ford, right. So Tom, right around this time, Tom Ford, had, you know, was about to leave. I think Gucci, I'm pretty sure was doing YSL, um, close somewhere in there. And so, you know, a guy going into Barney's or, uh, Ron Herman, Fred Siegel, with a suitcase full of ties and shirts that are expensive and interesting and made from vintage fabrics. Like, that wasn't that hard to get picked up by those stores. I mean, the clothes were cool, right? Like, they were good. But, mm-hmm. like, you could get that meeting. That was their job, was to meet you. Like, their job right. was to bring in new things. And, and you were, you were, you weren't bothering them. You were helping them because you were helping them do their job. Um, it just took, Maybe somebody to make the phone call for you or enough persistence. Um, <clears throat> but you could at least get the meeting. You could at least show people stuff. Um, so that was the idea, you know, like to, the barriers to enter, entry are low 
from a financing perspective, you know, I started Band of Outsiders with $30,000 worth of savings. That was it. And I didn't get financed until six, seven years in mm-hmm. uh, by, the, by the grace of some factories who got paid very late and, and uh, things like that. Um, but with a wholesale business, you really don't need to raise capital, or you didn't at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because you would make stuff, and if you were growing slow enough, like you make stuff and you sell it to your stores, you get pretty good terms, get tr- good terms to your factories, and there's not too big of a gap in there. I didn't really pay myself for the first couple of years. I just sort of ate spaghettios and got by. Um, how, how, how did that make you feel in the sense that, because that, from other entrepreneurs and people that I've talked to that were in the middle of something that from the outside was extremely successful and prestigious, but they're not really making any money personally. And you know, you said you're at home eating SpaghettiOs, but you're yeah. on 10 issues of GQ out of yeah. 11 or 12. Like yeah. you're in the majority of them as like the future of American menswear, but you're eating SpaghettiOs. Well, yeah. How did that feel? I didn't care. I loved it. I loved every second of the beginning of Band of Outsiders. It was so much fun. But I were you, so great. I need more... And I mean, I'm not trying to editorialize, but were you like, I, no. I need to be able to not eat SpaghettiOs? Like, I want to go sure. out to dinner. I want to do this? Or? Sure. And that there, you know, I, but I also knew because I had done my financial plans, mm. I knew that there was an inflection point that I was okay. really close to where it was going to be okay. And then I knew there was another one where I'd be able to raise capital. Right. Um, so I, I didn't feel like I would until, you know, later on the hamster wheel at all. Once I felt the hamster wheel later on, which definitely, you know, post 2008 and, and all that stuff, like, you know, and once you really get into that fashion system, you're like, what am I doing? That's pretty dreadful. The beginning was just pure adrenaline. And, and yeah, I, we were, I was in GQ all the time and that was like enough. That was dinner at a fancy restaurant that gave me a, the same, you know, uh, sense of, you know, euphoria and satisfaction. I mean, uh, I went back and looked through some old GQ issues I had, and you were seriously in 10 of the, like, 11 or 12 of that year. It's crazy. I mean, it, it, it from a Oxford to a tie to a whole suit. And I mean, don't even get me started about the whole boat shoe thing, which yeah. is now coming back. Uh, it's interesting, yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, that that was, you were a very large part of the for lack of a better term, like renaissance of, of American design and interpretation. Um, well, thanks. And thanks to them. I mean, listen, Jim Moore and Jim Nelson and Madeline Weeks and mm-hmm. God, even Will, I mean, Will was there was running it out. I mean, Will yeah. was there forever. Everybody there was so incredibly supportive. Like I couldn't even, like, okay. You know, I couldn't even believe it. Um, yeah. They were just, they were wonderful. They were, and again, like it was great for them too, because these were, I understood why, you know, I made shirts and ties because it made a lot of sense, like pragmatically, but I also understood really clearly, like that this is a weird thing for a young designer to be doing at the time in 2004, like ties. Yeah. And I, I read GQ. So, you know, you look at those credits and it's all like Hugo Boss and stuff like that. Um, so I knew there was like, I hate this word, but like a white space, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, for something cool in there. You know, I didn't know that 
Tom Brown and, and Michael Bastion and, and uh, who else was around at that time? Like that whole crew would be coming up with all this energy around American trad, as they call it in Japan. And, you know, I mean, you remember like, it became such a thing that then the European designers were doing preppy and American trad. And it was like a, you know, it was like a movement. It was really cool. Yeah. And that was luck. I mean, right. Like that was like a moment that mm, from this politely push back on the luck in the <laughs> sense that you gave them a very much fully formed brand outside of the clothes, right? A yeah. Tom Brown Oxford was a Tom Brown Oxford and a band at Oxford was a band Oxford, but a band had like, but band of outsiders had a really cool site. They had the whole Polaroid series. I mean, they being you. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was way, I mean, Tom Brown, God bless him was just doing like a circus runway show, but yeah. there wasn't all that additional association that you could have. I mean, when you got, as someone who considers himself an elitist snob, uh, which I, I <laughs> just will admit, when you got like the Jason Schwartzman co-sign, I was like, it's game over. It's game <laughs> over. Because like that dude, and then also all of the other people that you were finding from Frank Ocean, and it like, I almost be like, maybe you should just be an A&R guy. Because you were just finding every single person way before they popped. They became associated with band. And so that label, and so now when you look at, if you're GQ, you're like, well, dude, of course we got to feature band because band also equals not just cool clothes, it equals cool culture. And that was something that you had tapped into unknowingly or willingly that made it so much easier. Well, yeah, listen, I appreciate that. Listen, I wasn't trying to build a fashion brand, right? Like Tom mm -hmm. was building a fashion brand. Right. And he was using the, really perfectly using the levers of, fashion week and department stores and shopping shops and all that stuff to build this incredibly focused gray red white and blue idea that was repetitive a bit of a circus on the on the runway literally um, <laughs> and literally and you know god bless him man he he the whole story happened he sold to a big you know holding company that that buys fashion brands um what i was trying to do and what i'm trying to do now is it's just a completely different construct. I'm trying to build a, like a frequency for people to tune into um, and certainly buy stuff and, but also just kind of live in and soak themselves in. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's in a weird, in a weird way, like thinking about my, my initial interest in film, which is such an enveloping experience when you're really in a film music sound and actors cinematography, lights all that stuff you know that almost wasn't enough for me that almost felt like too uh sort of it was multi-dimensional but not, there weren't enough dimensions there right like i saw fashion and see fashion or see clothing brands as this platform to just throw so much stuff in there so many ideas and create such a full you know 360 degree um experience and uh, set of memories and feelings for people um, through a store, through a product, through a web experience, um, through a campaign, video, photography, all that stuff, uh, music. Um, yeah, so it was all, it was, it all, it's interesting. I mean, that brand, there was a, 
as with the entire book, it was a brand book that I did at the beginning that was so clear what the brand was. Um, and it, I, you know, made sure I followed it till the end. Um, so all those things as they came, whether opportunistically, like I was shooting Polaroids pragmatically because that was really easy to do and cheap to do at the time. And, you know, I met, but I met Jason Schwartzman opportunistically. He came into my, my apartment with his, his cousin, Jackie, looking for clothes and saw my DVD collection and was like, oh my God, we're, we're, we're best friends. Let's do this. Um, but the campaign just happened like, oh, maybe we should shoot Jason. You know, it wasn't like this. Yeah. This, Jason uh, in like a plan. corpse position on a stairwell, right? Yeah. Oh, that, was <laughs> the best. that was the best. I mean, that's all. Those ideas we picked the location when we did that Chinatown shoot, but those ideas were all Jason. As an aside, how many Polaroids would you use per shoot? Because you would only use like, you'd only show, you know, one or two, right? Well, we would, well, we would actually, they were always campaigns and they were always Mm -hmm. these full narratives. So they were probably like, depending on the campaign, eight to 10 setups. Sometimes there'd be a single shot. And then a lot of times we would do these like little four image, like mini narratives. Um, we would use with the Jason shoot. You'd use so many because he's so hilarious. You want to capture everything. And at the time it wasn't so precious until towards the end, we had to store all this film because they stopped making the, they stopped making the film. So it was actually really nerve wracking yeah. um, running out of film, but we would, shoot, I mean, we, I, we shot so much. I have them all in my closet downstairs. I need to scan them before they completely degrade. You know, the, the images and the look that you made, and I mean, I want to jump to entire world here. I think this is like very good entrepreneurial advice too, because because you have a brand book, because you have a, a fully formed idea internally of what this brand is and what entire world is. I actually feel like that helps you grow in so many ways because you know what to say yes to, but more importantly, what to say no to. Totally, totally. And you also, it's what allows you to bring more people on and 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 scale. Right. And in an entire world, very deliberately, you know, we started, I raised a little bit of money, started with a staff and I didn't want it. To, I want it to be incredibly personal because I think that's so important and that resonates uh, whether people know it or not. But I also wanted it to be not complete torture where I'm, you know, like I, I want to be able to run the business properly and, and learn from my band of outsiders mistakes and, uh, you know, and, and collaborate. So mm-hmm. those, the brand book is a tool that, you know, it's, it's not this precious, like hidden thing. It's something that the first day anybody starts working for me, we go through the brand book and talk mm. about like, the, this is what the, here are the brand codes, here are the product codes. So they really, they really get it and they understand just the essence. And it's not a very big brand book. A big brand book is a bad idea. It's yes. a really, really focused, focused set of images and words. Um, and you can just always go back to it. And it's, 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 um, and I, and we still do, you know, like when I, Stephen, who, who, uh, and Sissy, who you were talking to leading up to this, that we work on all the, all the social stuff together. And whenever we're losing our center, we just go back to the brand book and go back to the first dump of Instagram posts, which is a lot extrapolated from that brand book. Uh, and that's just a beacon. It, it just guides you. Yeah. And I mean, the, the stuff that you, have made is is obviously very different in the sense that it's not super super you're not making like four or five hundred dollar oxfords it's very accessible approachable do you 
Um, do you think that it would be better to be super expensive? Uh, it's a good question. You know, it's, I, I, it depends on you define better. I mean, I, as a designer, as a product designer, like I was never comfortable with band's price point. And I Mm. always, I just felt like, you know, the, the wholesale to retail markup was something that was just not right. That I don't understand quite values being added there. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. And that, that my aesthetic and my vision kept going back to that original target idea, which was making something that's really good. That's like a really good product um, and not have it be the cheapest thing, um, but have it be um, something that you, you covet. Um, and but the, it's accessible, but it's, it's still a little out of reach because it's made so well, because the fabric's so good. And, and that there's something idiosyncratic about it still and idiosyncratic enough that like that price is like, right. So it's like, I can buy that crazy purple shirt uh, because it's not too expensive, but you know, I can see where that fits into my budget and my, my closet or whatever. Um, but you know, the reality is, and this goes back to like Tom Brown band of outsiders always sort of sat in the middle of like being expensive to like super expensive. And he was always, he is always in this really astronomical place. It's truly luxury. And I, I think that serviced his brand really well. And I think it was a disservice to band. I think it was a little confusing how it sat in the middle. And with the entire world, it's a challenge because I, I know doing the costing and doing the design and sourcing that there is true value in this product right. and relative and, and, and it's made responsibly and sustainably and we develop all the fabric and it's really, it's a good product. Um, but we are in our own universe. Mm. Um, just like most great, what I think of as great cult brands are, even a brand like Supreme, their pricing architecture works within their own universe. It's yes. kind of expensive compared to Stussy or other streetwear, you know, it's kind of over there um, and cheap compared to other things at Dover Street Market where it sells. Um, Comme des Garçons is another example. They're really in their own stratosphere, their own pricing architecture. Um, but the thing about price that I sort of, before I started Entire World, I didn't think it would be like, oh, the world's open to us because we have a, you know, $20 pair of underwear and $30 t-shirt. But yeah. I did think that it would be, it would certainly, and it is, you can access a lot more people. Um, but there's still plenty of people who think it's totally overpriced and very expensive because they're informed by, they're a generation that's informed by fast fashion and mm-hmm. mass merch, like by Uniqlo and Gap and, and, and places that are making uh, huge volume, low margin stuff, uh, not responsibly, necessarily, sustainably, whatever. The thing about price, though, that I sort of started to interrupt, no, yeah, please. didn't take into account was what it gives this immediate value to something. If something's expensive, you automatically think it's special. Even if you think it's ridiculous how and expensive I, I it is. I hate that. I hate that I so know. much. I know. But it's it's true. So even yeah. like gifting people and like getting people excited about the product, you always want to give some stuff away and just educate people. Um, there's no question. I mean, people do love getting our stuff, especially our sweats. They're so cozy and fun and fun to wear right now. Uh, any of the stuff. But like, it's just more exciting to get like a free $3,000 handbag, I would guess, than like a, you know, like a sure. cotton sweatsuit. Um, or even, you know, 
a white band of outsiders shirt that's 325 at Barney's versus a band of uh, entire world giant shirt that's 125. Um, and that's, you know, the, the pricing psychology. So it's a weird thing. Yeah. No, I, I, well, first off, I'm really grateful by that answer too, because I think now, if you think about all of the cultural things that have happened and global things that have happened outside of the cool clothing bubble, um, it's super important more than ever now to have some form of sustainability or environmental awareness and labor practices and things like that. And obviously, I know you're not manufacturing things at Greenfield or anything anymore. Yes, yeah. they no longer exist. But when you've started to work with other with other companies and and specifically like within your within your production, what are the first things that you're that you're trying to keep in mind that meet those sort of sustainable and environmental um, practices you you want to have? Sure. I mean, it's listen. There's 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 standards that like exist. Mm. I, I really like. I did a lot of research about this because what I wanted to do was build a company with a sustainable design ethos. Um, but not a sustainable brand. Um, and so I talked to people at Patagonia, to their design team, and I talked to... Cheese. Uh, they're hardcore. Yeah. About everything. Things like packaging and, and uh, you know, fabric and, uh, you know, all the... What are the main considerations from, as, from a design standpoint when you're talking about um, sustainability? Um, and from a factory sourcing standpoint, there's a set of standards that you can really find best practices and we have a we have that we actually have it on our website. You yeah, no, it's it. going to point that out. And it's um, you know, it's something that when you're sourcing, you you have you have to hold everybody to. And we do not have the budget to go to every factory contractor and subcontractor and you know, like do like spot checks. But we do know to work with people. We get them to sign something. We they generally work with analogous brands that uh, hold them to the same standards and we're just really careful about it and you know know that like a low price is too good to be true on a on a, on a, on a cmt on a cut make trim or something like that right and then as far as fabrication you know trying to stay away from this like vanity thing but like really trying to also you know i think 85 percent of our fabrics are made from organic cotton or recycled cotton or responsibly sourced wool or whatever it is and just knowing that, you know, and we, I won't work with leather or any, you know, in oh. terms of any animal products, if, if it can't, it has to be completely cruelty free. Um, and there's, from a design perspective, I just think it's so much more creative to try to not work with an animal product like leather uh, right. when going into footwear and going to other stuff. Because no matter what anybody says, if that's a byproduct of meat, fine, shouldn't make the meat anyway. But uh, you know, so we developed all these fabrics that are seemingly kind of simple. Some of them, some of them more complex than they seem like this Terry, this, um, yeah, I love this, the short sleeve Terry. I have the long sleeve Terry. Um, my wife actually commandeered it and she wears it all the time, Nice, but it's great because as an aside, I think every knit I've ever owned is always about like four inches too long. I like to wear my trousers higher. Most of, unfortunately I've, I've, grown more accustomed to like bespoke trousers. And so I have a very high rise that I like on all my stuff oh, nice. that that knit fits perfect with it because oh, I will do like a 14 inch rise on it. And it's like just perfectly below the waist. It's great. It's very, very good. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's, I thought it would be so 
much easier to like make tees and sweats and undies and stuff than it was making tailored clothing, which was essentially band was about wovens. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not, <laughs> it's its own <laughs> challenge. I mean, the fabrics are much more, uh, much more difficult to work with in terms of how they wash and wear and all that stuff. But all the subtleties of that, you know, from the yarn being sustainably sourced, whatever it is, like, we're just like in it. I spent like a year and a half before Entire World started with a Japanese supplier that's one of my seed investors developing all these fabrics um, just to get them right and to make them proprietary, even if it's not so obvious that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and just dial that in and keep it as, as, as pure as possible. And, and, you know, like I was saying, like, not because i want to give the impression that we're saving the world here um like a lot of brands do who who put sustainability on you know at the forefront of their marketing messages yeah uh, it drives me nuts uh, just do it just shut up and do it yeah i so you, earlier you had mentioned other products that you're going into like do you hmm. see because you know i do wonder like what is it going to look like for entire world shoes or i mean because the socks you you have are actually really really good um underwear is great i mean it's all very good stuff but like do you see yourself going into you know like eyewear cosmetics like what it's a good question you know i think as far as apparel goes i I really want to keep it as tight as possible i mean that is a huge huge takeaway from band and this goes back to sustainability as well like and just the way people buy clothes now and digital Mm. culture like you know, you want to buy, you, you, to some extent, like with apparel, like we have to stay in a lane that people trust us for. And we have to, if we do that, um, we can stay sustainable and we can sell through more, most of our inventory and we can not be, you know, you know, sitting on tons of unsold stuff at the end of the season or developing tons of ideas that just never make it to market and all that waste and all that energy wasted and fabric wasted and um, time wasted and shipping back and forth. And yeah, the, you know, the tighter we stay, uh, it's a better business. It's just uh, the, the clothes can be more affordable. Uh, we can make a margin that allows us to, you know, grow in a, in a sort of self-sustaining way. Um, so, and that's really hard to do to build a business, to keep growing while keeping the product line tight, because that means unlike band, we were servicing our call customer the whole time. This means we have to keep doing what we're doing, but find more people and more people and more people. Um, but uh, to your point, like Beyond Apparel, we're talking to a footwear partner right now about developing shoes because I love making shoes. Um, I love the boat shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the design ethos is s- straight out of the brand and product code book, uh, but much more design forward than the, than the apparel in a way. Um, uh, that it'll totally, they'll pull from everything we're about. Cozy, comfy, colorful, pure, sustainable. Um, they're not all birds though, right? No. Okay, good. They're not all birds. Okay, good. Uh, they're, it's, a, it's much, no, God, no. Um, I mean, God bless those guys. They're really nice guys. And, you know, I have to say, like, sure. <laughs> reality, listen, the thing about all birds, like, you have to give, here's where one can, like I know Jamie, I know the the designer there, the creative director is a great guy. He's a product designer. He's an industrial designer. They created a product as did the Crocs people, right? That mm-hmm. is in its own way, maybe not for you or I, is an iconic 
product, like immediately out of the gate, like looked like nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because of that, it found immediate wild success. I mean, and I think Yeezy is another example of, of footwear that sort of uh, depends on the shoe, but some of these products that they put out are so out there and uh, kind of ugly and weird, but they're idiosyncratic and interesting. Um, so oddly enough, when I think about footwear, I think, and we're not there yet, you know, we're just sure. sort of an ideation. I think a lot more about Allbirds and Crocs and Yeezy than I do about Sperry and Minnetonka and, you know, all these other references I would have looked at for band. Um, but we'll see. I'm just like musing and meditating on it right now. No, that's fine. Um, it's, it's interesting because the distinction you said between those other brands is say like Minnetonka, Sperry, those are brands that are known almost as like manufacturers, right? And the other brands you named, I would say people know Allbirds, not for the Allbirds brand. People know Allbirds for the people that wear Allbirds, right? Because mm-hmm. here's the thing. I think Allbirds as a product is fantastic. But yeah. the people that wear Allbirds, I associate with all of these other things that yeah. I will admit that I'm like, I strongly dislike. And <laughs> it's not it's not fair. It's stupid. I wrestle with my own elitism and stupidity and white privilege and all that stuff. Right. Sure. Like, I wrestle with that and I know I'm not perfect, but the thing that I think is interesting is some of these brands, like I imagine I would like all birds if I didn't know all the ring dings of people who are, I am not a fan of or people who I don't think are, are good in the essence of the mm. world. Um, I imagine who are, I would the, like who are those people, Jeremy? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not here to to call it out, but I would say, you know, okay. When I moved to New York, yeah, I was called silly names, or excuse me, when I when I lived in St. Louis, I was called mm. silly names based on what I wore. Mm. Um, they're not appropriate to even say on this podcast, but mm. I was called all sorts of names. I moved to New York, and all of a sudden, I'm loved, and I and I'm a sure. cool guy because I have these oversized glasses because I have these these girls at the time they were girls, not even women's jeans. Like, you know, I was wearing to, you know, to get that look. And so the people that were calling me those names are the people that are trolling me on Instagram wearing all. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. No, I feel you. It's an, it, it became this very easy, immediate, easy repository for a design choice for a lot of people that, um, probably don't definitely don't have you know this the type of you know i would you can say taste but like you know our interest in design is just deeper and wider and 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 sure we're we're going for other things um but it is interesting that it it is that because it is a choice um and it just you know a lot of people made it yeah, I mean, because my my free idea to Allbirds is start an ad campaign by telling all of these types of people not to wear your shoes anymore and watch all these <laughs> other people wear your shoes. Because like, here's the thing, like even with Crocs, right? Crocs are still, they didn't change their shoes. They're just cool now because people are trying to wear them ironically. And the people who were not not nice that used to wear them still wear mm. them, but it's now 
the 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 spotlight is being shown on this guy wearing it ironically right or this no guy doubt cool and i and that's the thing that i to actually tie back to entire world that i think it's really really great that you haven't and have never had that issue yet because now you've been around long enough hmm. that it's not like all these VC VC dudes started wearing you guys. And now it's like, dude, I can't like entire world. Who cares about Scott Sternberg <laughs> that he did that stuff? I can't like it because these dudes are wearing it. Like entire world can so still funny. be my radio head and still have all these other people like it. And so anyway, but that's the, the like, all birds mistake. <laughs> this is a, you know, it's, or just, or success. I mean, you sure. depends which, which side you look at it from. I mean, this is the challenge of building, you know, uh, a global cult brand. This is the challenge that Supreme, I'm sure, right now um, is in the middle of grappling with, whether mm -hmm. they grapple with it or not. It's the reality of what happens to something that, um, for whatever reason, it's about this idea of cool and it's about mm -hmm. this idea of exclusivity and mm -hmm. and idiosyncrasy, um, subculture, um, and what happens when it's co-opted into a global business yeah and can it remain cool probably not you know for entire world my hope and this was a takeaway from band this is a real takeaway that i i'm a cult brand guy like that's what i'm doing because i'm all about idiosyncrasy and I, i'm not like saying let's build a cult brand i'm just doing things in a really specific way mm -hmm. and making really specific choices and there's lots of easter eggs everywhere for people to find but I also did want to, do want to make a product at a price point um, that stands up beyond the cool, that can usurp the cool, and is actually just a great product. And you take it completely out of context, um, you take the label off, and it's still, it's still a great product that like will last and, and that you love and all that. Yeah. Um, and in the great experiment here is can we can this be a global cult brand like like supreme or, or margella or comme des garçons or you know even like uh Ramoa or um I mean, there's a bunch of them like yeah. these you know these these little chrome hearts uh in a smaller way like these brands have scaled into into nice sized businesses uh, but still kind of tap into something real I mean, Vans is an interesting example. You know, Vans is owned by one of the biggest holding companies in the world. Yeah. There's, there's like still Vans something North Face. Yeah. 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 There's still something authentic about Vans, I think. Like, it's not a skater shoe anymore, really, but it there's still something there that doesn't doesn't kill me, you know? I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And I, I think in a weird way, maybe maybe in a weird way it's because vance has never changed their advertising other than like we make a skate shoe like yeah. they're not like hey we make a fashion shoe totally they're still like we make a skate shoe we make a skate shoe if you're yeah. gonna do that that's fine but we're not even gonna acknowledge it because this is our north star and I, I imagine that regardless of whatever happens with entire world um obviously i wish you as much success as possible but like I think <laughs> that if that is if that is your guys North stars like, look, we're going to stick to our brand book or we're going to stick to this. Then I think you'll be fine. I mean, if, I think so, if I think so too. Not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so too. I, I don't think people around the world are actually all that different. I, I, I don't, I think 
we speak different languages. We have different touch points. We have different, you know, cultures, subcultures, all that stuff. But, you know, there's a set of emotions that we all ride on the roller coaster of every day. Um, and I, 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 you know, I think there's a way to tap into, to a lot of that stuff, but just being as specific as we are, just maybe a little bit louder. Yeah. Well, I, I think you're, you're on your way and it's obviously you're already there with a ton of stuff like the, the shirts, the, the, the pleated, uh, pleated chinos. I mean, it's, it's all, yeah, they're, they're very good. (laughs) It's a brand. I, I think once you try, like you order a pair of underwear or boxers, like you said, or a pair of simple socks, like it's a, it's a thing. It's a real thing. And you just got to give it a shot. Um, there's something about this quarantine. It's been really incredible for this brand. Well, Thanks. You I mean, mean the sweats, yeah, yeah, the say. sweats, no doubt. But even it's it's interesting. It's all it's haloed over into the rest of that stuff, and so we're really seeing a huge uptick in business. And specifically with men, we're seeing what what happens with men, which is very different with women. Where when men find something they like, they start to buy it in multiples, really start to grab onto it, and then they really start to trust what your next move is they want you to lead them there. Um, and that's happening. So, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a slog. It's a slow roll. So try it out folks. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting. You've been listening to Blamo. That is it for this season. 20 episodes survived a pandemic. Jeez Louise. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and we're produced by Blamo Media. You can follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcasts, and please leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blamo, yep, the season is not stopping, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo, and you can join the Blam fam, and you'll get access to additional interviews, a community Slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. Yes, you're supporting me, you're supporting our editor, you're supporting the social media team. This is real, so try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>